Good evening. Morning, should I say. <laughs> that was a little joke. It's a privilege again to, to bring you the word, of the word of the Lord. We are in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Um, but before we read God's word, let's, let's go to him and ask for his help. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I, I thank you, O Lord, for the truth of your word, for the power that is in it, and for the promises that you have attached to it. Lord, may you do that work that only you can do, that I or anybody in here isn't capable of doing, and that is to convict the sinner, to restore the backslider, O Lord, and to save those who are lost. So I pray all these things, and may you be glorified and honored. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So if you're, if you're unfamiliar with this text, that's okay. This is actually the only time that this story is recorded in the Gospels. We only have one record of Jesus entering into this town and, and raising a, a, a dead boy. But this unique little story is important for us here this morning. Simply because it is unique. It's a unique little story. That takes place in a unique little town, and it's, we find the story in, an, in a unique book. I mean, the whole book of Luke was written so that we can have an accurate account of the things that Jesus did. This book is written by, by a historian. So the words and the details in this book are vital for us. And the one thing I want us to take away from this is this. Whenever we see Jesus walk into a scene, walk into someone's story, walk into someone's life, Walk into someone's context, whatever that context may be. Nothing remains the same and everything changes. And everything changes. So, let's look at this text here this morning. Right here, verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Soon after, soon after what? Soon after what? Well, prior to this story, we have Jesus being confronted by this Roman centurion. Now, the context of that day was a Jew and a Roman centurion, though they were not buddies. They would never go and sit down and have a beer together. But this Roman centurion, this, this Roman oppressor, oppressor of the Jews, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Jesus, my servant is dying. He's sick. Can you heal him? And he says, no, Jesus, you don't have to go to the house. You are a man of authority. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is marveled at this. This is the context that we're in. And, and, and even before that, a few days prior, if not the day before, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, that great sermon And he does great miracles. At a a touch, he heals the sick. And at a word, he casts out demons. Even the demons fear him. This is no mere man that walks into the scene, walks into this little town called Nain. So that's the context here. Soon after, he went to a city called Nain. Now, the, the, the mention of Nain is actually rather interesting because... We know nothing about Nain. It's only mentioned one other time in the Bible, and that in the Old Testament, and that doesn't give us any more clarity in what Nain actually is or what it was like. 
I do know this, Nain is about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a small town, a small country town. It reminds me of whenever I would, in Mississippi, and I'm driving in, you know, the the small country roads that get narrower and narrower as the trees get thicker and thicker. And I'm traveling, and I'm, I'm going around, I'm heading to this, this church, and I pass these, 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 these houses, these country houses. This is a small, small, small town. It's a town called Chula. Now, there has to be somebody in here who knows the town of Chula. Raise your hand if you know Chula, Mississippi. Chula, Mississippi. Got one. It is a rather unknown town. And when I get to the church, it's a small Presbyterian church with ten people. Ten lovely people. And the one thing they brag about is this. They said, they told me this, Jerry, we are the poorest town in the nation. Now, whether that's true or not, there's a lot of evidence to go with their statement. It's a very, very poor town, a very insignificant town in a seemingly insignificant state. Can anything good come to Chula? Can anything good come out of Chula? Washington, D.C. is not concerned about Chula, most certainly, right? That's the feeling that you get here. Jesus should, could have gone to Jerusalem. Jesus could have gone to any other city, but he walks into this town called Nain, this unknown, seemingly insignificant town. They have never met the Lord Jesus. And this is where he decides to do some of his greatest work, and the people have no clue what he's getting ready to do. Soon afterwards, after this great miracle in this great city, he goes to this small town. Soon afterwards, question by way of application. This says something about our Lord Jesus, is that there's nothing too small or insignificant for him to enter into. What about you? Do you feel small and insignificant? Do you feel as though... If there were a, a list of, of important things on, on, in God's mind, that you would be somewhere near the bottom. That there's no way that God could care about me. There's no way. I've, I've out-sinned. I've out-sinned God's grace. There's, there's, there's no way possible that God could care about my situation in my context. Would God come walking down the, that narrow road into my life, into my heart, that, my, my, my dirty little heart? Would that, is that what he would do? Well, I would dare to tell you that that, ex, that is exactly what he would do. It's exactly what he does do. Soon afterwards, he went to this town called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. A large crowd, and this crowd was there whenever he healed Jairus's, that Roman centurion's servant. He, they were there. They were there whenever he was preaching that great sermon. They were there when they saw him after preaching a sermon. His 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 sermon, his power matched the words that he said. He could he he could speak to the sick. He could touch the sick and speak to a, a demon possessed individual, and the the sickness would flee at his command. And the demons would, would shudder and run. 
who is this individual? You can imagine them whenever the day after the sermon, they're sitting at their table with, with mother and son and, and father and daughter and friends, and they're gathering together, and they're wondering, man, this Jesus, who is this individual? Who is this individual who, who, who can do such marvelous things? You can imagine them there sitting and, and quoting some of the, the words that Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall laugh later. Blessed are the the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All these these great, these great little, little, little tweets, you can almost call them, from Jesus. These great memorable lines that that speak such volumes to a culture that says blessedness is not found in being mournful. Blessedness isn't found in being, in, in, in being poor in spirit. No, no. Jesus says this is where blessedness actually is. This is where happiness, this is what and where happiness is. You can imagine that they're buzzing and brimming with hope. Jesus has come into their context and has fed their soul and fed their minds and, and challenged their worldview. He's made such great claims. He's saying, I, I, he, he, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. These individuals would have heard these things from Jesus. And this large crowd that's following him, they're after more of what Jesus can offer them. They're after that. They want more of this Jesus. Are you here this morning like that? You're brimming with hope. Oh, Jesus challenges you intellectually. Jesus, Jesus fulfills you emotionally. He fills those heart and those he fills those heartfelt desires that you have. He satisfied them all. Oh, this is what the crowd was like. His disciples were with him, and this, along with him came this, this large crowd. But that's not the only crowd that meets Jesus. That's one context. This large crowd that God, Jesus right here is answering some of life's deepest questions. And they want more of it. They're, they're hungering for, for more of what Jesus can do for them. But that's not the only crowd. It's there. For it says here in verse 11, Now as he approached the gate of this city, a, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And here it is. A sizable crowd from the city was with her. There are th- three groups of people, or types of people, I would say, that that. They come to meet Jesus. There's the large crowd, there's the dead man, and there's the the widow. So let's take them in that order. There's this other large crowd. They They are mourning because death has entered the camp. This large crowd possibly signals that the person who died was of someone of great significance. And they're coming to pay their respects. They've come to pay their respects to this dead and dead boy. Surely some are, 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 are overcome with, with silence. Silence dominates them as, this, as this, this corpse passes before them. Surely others are, are cynical. 
and possibly others, or definitely others are, are mourning. We've all been to funerals. Doesn't life seem to go to pause? Whenever the casket is right there in front of you, all of the, all the, all the desires that you have seem to pale in, pale in comparison to this corpse that's laying before you. It challenges everything in you. What is life all about? Why did this individual die? You can imagine that they are possibly, maybe even saying, asking these same questions. They're not brimming with hope as this first crowd was. They're asking some rather difficult questions. Death has entered their camp. This is a messy, dirty situation. This is very, very messy. Funerals, though they can be orderly, are never really all that orderly in the heart, are they? They're never all that really or, all that orderly. It's a difficult place to be, to be in front of death. We try to hide from it. Our culture tries to, to hide it from us. Some of the best places possibly to go do your devotion. This is not, I'm not prescribing this, I'm just saying. Some of the best places to go and do your devotion would be to go to a graveyard. Because there, you are reminded that I am but a breath in this life. I am but a breath. That one day, I will be like that individual. Oh, it's humbling. Teach us to number our days, O Lord, so that we may have a heart of wisdom. That's this first crowd. Death is into their camp. How do you view death? How do you handle death? Is death only to you this, you know, we all must die, we all must kick the bucket? We all have to face it. We all have to pay our dues back to the earth. One day we will all be there. We must just get over it. It's just going to happen. Is that how we talk about death? Is that how you talk about death? That death is the only certainty. You know the old statement that there are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. One you can evade and the other you can't. You can't evade death. So why do we throw quips at it? Why do we throw these little, these little nonchalant statements as though death is not something evil and terrible? This is the situation that Jesus is walking into. Here you have this one crowd brimming with hope, brimming with life, brimming with all types of this anticip- anticipatory questions. And there's this other crowd that doesn't have that. They have something quite different. Quite different. So Jesus meets this, 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 this second crowd, and he also comes in contact with this dead boy. That's the next individual. All we know is that this was a dead child. We don't know how he died, but it was obviously pretty recently. This was a dead individual. Like I said, death has entered the camp. And more, and, and more strikingly, death has entered into the family for the second time of this widow. Why do we die? Do we die because it's the natural order of things? Is that why we die? Because it's just natural. Is, that, is, that, is, is death the only thing the cosmos has to offer you? 
Is that the only thing? You come into the world, brimming with hope, all these expectations. You, you achieve great things. You overcome great obstacles. You have all these great desires. And the only thing death, can, only thing the cosmos offers you is here. You're going to die and that's it. Is that all? Well, why do we die? We die because of sin. I'm not saying that this individual died because of a sin that he committed. I'm saying death has entered into the world. The reality of death has entered into the world because of sin. You go to the first pages of Genesis, and there you see that God created everything good. He was pleased with everything. So pleased that he would declare that it was good. And then what happened? You know the story. The crown jewel of creation rebelled against him. And then that's when death came. That's when death entered into the camp, into the world. And the world fell into sin and misery. The reason why we see people dying in the world is because of sin. The reason why we see poverty, the reason why we see murder, the reason why we see cancer, the reason why we see all types of misery is not because it's just a natural order of things. The reason why we see these things is because of sin. And here it is, Jesus coming across this this individual who is dead. Jesus was the one who spoke the world into existence. Jesus was the one that was there. Jesus was the one that walked with his creatures, Adam and Eve. He was the one. And here he is, God in flesh, standing right there. In front of this dead body, the, the, the thing that is completely antithetical to who he is and to his plan and to his ways. Death. Oh, Jesus has a quite different view of death. There's no quips thrown here. Jesus knows exactly what he's facing. Jesus knows exactly what he's entering into. The worst of all enemies. Death is the assassin. It's the assassin. So that begs the question, why then do we love our sin? If we know that our sin, if the wages of sin is death, why then do we coddle them? Why then do we throw quips at death and, and, and not be concerned about the evil that's in the world? How can we just sit back? How can we sit back and, and take in sin as though it's our favorite dessert? Like mine is cheesecake. I know if I eat cheesecake, I would put on 10 pounds per bite. And that's why I don't eat it. That's why I don't eat it. So why then do we, do we take in the poison? Why, why then do we go to the assassin and say, yes, please, shoot me more? Because it pleases me. Why would we do that? Sin brings death, not pleasure. It brings death. And right here before the second crowd, and before this woman, and right before Jesus is right there, the, the proof in the proverbial pudding that sin is the cause of all the world's misery. What on earth can Jesus do in this situation? What will he do? Can Jesus step into the most and the messiest of all situations and solve it? Can he change everything? Oh, he meets death, he meets, he meets the second crowd this morning, he meets this corpse that's dead, and right before him is a sign of sin. And then he meets this woman, 
this widow. And that's, this is really where the story zooms in and focuses on this widow. And the phrases here are important. This was a widow, which means that not long ago she lost her husband. Death has entered into her life a second time. So not only has she lost her husband, she's now lost her son. And not only has she lost her husband and her son, she's lost her hope and security. Because in that day, women were far more dependent upon men than they would have liked to have been, possibly. What was she going to do? Who was going to take care of her? But at this moment, that may not have been her most pressing concern. But it's something that was going to be facing her afterwards. Oh, this is such a messy situation. This is so, so messy. This is so terrifying. Only a, only a widow knows what a, a widow's pain. Only a mother who's lost their child knows that type of pain. Let that sink in. This is what Jesus walks up to. This very, very sad woman in a very, very sad situation. And she had no clue, no clue what the Lord Jesus could do and what he was getting ready to do. She was barred from that knowledge for a time. But this widow... Oh, man. And here it is, Jesus right here in the middle. He's hemmed in between this one crowd, this other crowd, this casket, and then this woman. Jesus, the God-man, hemmed in. Now, let that sink in for a moment. Jesus, the one who enjoyed the full and free and immense fellowship of the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. Here he is, hemmed in, bumping shoulders to shoulders with others. See, he, he can't escape. That is the picture of right there, even the incarnation. Jesus, like I said again, the one who before all eternity was God of all gods. God of gods and Lord of lords. Light of light, very God of very God. This Jesus was right there, right in the middle of it all, hemmed in, in the same way that he was hemmed into his mother's womb for nine months. Your God was in a womb. Your God is here in a crowd, in the mess, in the thick of it all. And here he does. He comes in. And, and look at verse 13. Notice, notice again. I want you to notice the way that this verse is phrased. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Notice the phrase, when the Lord saw her, the first thing we see is that he, he looked at the woman. He caught, we're not sure if he caught her eye, but he looked at the woman. He saw her. And the next thing he says that is he had compassion for her. Her situation, her pain moved the heart of Jesus. It moved him. That word compassion, we, we see it all throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. It's always used of when Jesus sees a crowd when he sees a crowd, he has compassion for the crowd. It's used of the, of the, of the, of the Good Samaritan story. The, the, the Good Samaritan had compassion on the, on, the, on the individual who was beat up in a ditch. It's also used in, in Luke, and these are all stories in Luke. It's also used in Luke of the, of, the, um, of the prodigal son. When the father saw the son 
running from afar, that rebellious son, the father's son ran to the son and had compassion on him. It should bring back memories of, 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 of Yahweh in the Old Testament. When he declares his name, one of the things he declares is he is a compassionate God. He's compassionate. And that's why I think, right here in verse 13, that's why I think Luke uses this word, Lord. He says, Lord. This is the first time this is used in this particular text. Lord. The Lord saw her. Luke is clearly showing you that the person that you are reading and watching walk in this crowd and walk into this situation is no mere man. It is the Lord himself, God. It is God walking into this. And your God is Jesus. Our God is, is Jesus. So if you have a question in here, does God care about me? Jesus says, yes, I'm compassionate. God cares about you. Does God see my struggle, my pain? Yes. He does. He sees it. And his heart is moved. His heart is turned over inside himself, if you can speak of God in those terms. He's compassionate. The Lord saw her compassion. And then he says this, something that any psychiatrist would say, never say this to a weeping woman. He says, do not weep. If there's anybody in all of the world that is able to weep freely, it should be a woman who has lost her son. If there's anybody, it should be her. So is Jesus saying it's a sin to weep and you should stop? No, no, no. Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. We see all through the Psalms that some of the godliest psalmists were those who wept bitterly. Jesus even says in the Sermon on the Mount that those who weep now shall laugh later. So he's not condemning the crying here. No, because he's getting ready to do something unexpected. He's getting ready to change this woman's life. So behind this prohibition, this, behind this, this imperative to not weep, it's not a, an unloving one. It's one that's saying, trust me, I'm getting ready to do something. Behind all of God's imperatives is not a sadistic God who doesn't want you to have fun. Behind all imperatives lies a promise. They all, there lies a promise. And notice what Jesus says, do not weep. And then he comes up and touches the coffin. And the bearers come to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Two things here. One, symbolically, he comes and he touches the coffin. Symbolically, that, that, is, that is signifying that, that he has crossed the barrier of, of purity. He now has become in, impure because he has touched death itself. He's taken upon that impurity himself. He touches it. And then at a word, at a word, all Jesus had to say, all Jesus had to do was speak to death. And death died. All he had to do was speak to death a word. No theatrics like we saw in Elijah's case. Elijah had to pray and cry out to God and then lay three times on the boy. No, Jesus is a much greater prophet than Elijah. 
Yes, not just the demons obey him, not just sickness. That, it's not just sickness that obeys him. It's not just the, the winds and the waves that obey him. Death itself obeys him. And at a word, he tells his young boy, young boy, I say to you. He didn't say I say to it. He says to the dead boy. Now imagine the crowd. Could you imagine being at the scene? Could you imagine being there? You can hear someone in the background, sir, speak to death all you want. He can't hear you. Because if he could hear, he would have risen up at the sound of his mother's cry. He speaks to death. And death, without any hesitation, dies. Jesus steps into the scene and does something marvelous. So let me ask you a question. Why did he raise this young man? Why did he raise him? Why didn't he raise, why didn't he go to the, to the funeral home, to the graveyards and raise them all? He could have, but he didn't. And let's be honest, this young boy was eventually going to die again. This was a sign, a glorious sign that was pointing beyond itself. This pointing to him that was going to be the resurrection and the life himself. He himself was going to take on death and defeat it. He himself was going to do that. He himself was going to raise himself from the grave and be victorious over death. But it's not just, it's not just that. It's also a promise to you and me of the future. Is that you and I, for those of us in here who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, death is not the last laugh. We'll not have the last laugh. That there is something beyond the grave. And even more than that, you will have your bodies again one day. You will have it again one day. That is the greatest hope in the Christian faith. That we will be resurrected. Both, we will be physically resurrected. And this is prefiguring that, this is pointing towards that. To him as a source of life. And then for us, a promise of life. And then verse 16, fear gripped them all. Fear gripped them all and began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. They said more than they realized. Yes, he was a great prophet. They knew the story of Elijah. They knew that story. They said God has visited. They didn't know that what they were actually saying was actually true. That God was there in their midst. God has visited his people. And here this morning, I want to tell you this. Every time believers gather together, your Savior visits his people. He's here. He is. Now let me close by by, by saying this, hopefully this, this leads into our Lord's Supper. Like I said, sin, death comes from sin. You remember what happened, how the, how the tempter tempted Eve to eat the, the, the forbidden fruit. She's, he, the Satan says, take and eat of the forbidden fruit, and Eve took and ate. And those two words brought sin and misery into the 
world. And God was very patient with the world. He was very patient with us. For thousands of years, he had to watch his people go into slavery. He had to watch men die. And then eventually he, he, he comes in the form of, he comes as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there at the Lord's Supper, whenever he's instituted in the Lord's Supper, Jesus says those familiar words. He says to them, after he breaks it, take and eat. What brought curse into the world? Jesus turns into a blessing. Because he himself is going to go and endure the curse. So those words now, take and eat, are a blessing. No longer a curse. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. We love you, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.